I'm your host, Josh Schneps, and we have a great episode of Schneps Connects for you this week. I'm very excited to speak with and share with all of you today's guest, Michael Dowling. Michael is one of the most influential leaders in healthcare, not just in New York State, but across the country. As president and CEO of Northwell Health, he leads a clinical, academic, and research enterprise with a workforce of more than 74,000, an annual revenue of $13.5 billion. That's with a B, billion. Northwell is the largest healthcare provider and private employer in New York State, caring for more than 2 million people annually through a vast network of nearly 800 outpatient facilities, including 220 primary care practices, 52 urgent care centers, home care, rehabilitation, and end-of-life programs, and let's not forget about the 23 hospitals. Michael, welcome, and thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I wanted to share with you that uh, I watched your CNBC interview at the end of March, and obviously that was the time when I was uh, under quarantine with my two kids and my wife and my family, and it was really in the midst of, I think, one of the most frightening points because there were so many unknowns of the pandemic. And I just want to say that your calm demeanor and really the positive outlook that you had at that time when no one else really could have known where we would be or where we would go was tremendously personally reassuring to me and I'm sure so many others. And I want to really thank you for that. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate that also. Thank you. And when you think about leadership, I mean, we talk the numbers, the sheer numbers of people that not only are responsible for in your organization, but the millions of people that they touch. And I think it's a tremendous attribute for any leader to be calm, particularly during a crisis. So I would love for you to just share, you know, what do you look at in terms of leadership skills that you had to draw on during the pandemic or honestly other crises? Because I'm sure in a company of your size, you have day-to-day things that are small crises. You know, you have many crises every day, you know, irrespective of which company that you're running, because that's the nature of the businesses anyway. But in our case, you know, we, we've had numerous instances uh, you could call crisis over the years. We had Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Irene. Uh, we had uh, SARS, H1N1, Ebola, etc. And then, of course, uh, COVID was the biggest thing. The only thing that I can compare it with, to some extent, was the AIDS epidemic way back years ago. And I was in government back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a difficult circumstance. But in terms of the qualities, the leadership qualities, you mentioned one. It is very, very important in a crisis to stay calm because you don't want to be getting people all excited or necessarily all around. And, and you lose perspective when you stress out and you, you begin to give this, uh, you know, I can't handle it perception. So calmness is very important. Um, inspiring people to do their best is important. Um, communicating consistently, and obviously sending the message, which I believe that you have to do on an ongoing basis in, in situations like this, is that irrespective of how bad it is and irrespective of how bad it may become, at the end of the day, we're going to win. Uh, we're, not going to be, we're not going to succumb to this crisis. We're not going to be defeated by it. Uh, you know, it's difficult. Uh, it will disrupt people. It will interrupt our normal lives. 
but at the end of the day, you're going to win. Another important thing with leadership is to unify, is to get people together. We're all together against the common enemy. We had a common enemy, a virus. And then you have to pull together, irrespective of your political persuasion, uh, irrespective of economics or whatever, religion or whatever, that you pull together and you unify and you tell the truth. You deal with reality, accept the fact that we have a problem and an issue, tell the truth to the public, but inspire and build trust and give the facts as the facts should be given, but stay calm. Lead a leadership that goes crazy in a crisis only, you know, perpetuates craziness. Calmness is very, very important. It's some of the hardest things to do. But in my case, I get, you know, when, when things get bad around me, I get calmer. It's just probably in my personality. I don't get thrown off balance too much by things like this because it, it doesn't accomplish anything. Well, that's a great trait to have. I've been lucky that way. You know, I've been in many, many situations since something occurs and everybody's running around with their, like to have their heads cut off. They don't know where they're going. They're, they're, they're just panicking. You can't panic. Stay nice and calm. You say, okay, we've got an issue. What are we going to do about it? Uh, let's put the plan in place. Let's focus on it. Let's be, a well, be very well aware of the circumstance, but don't panic. You cannot panic in a crisis, in my view. Well, thank you for sharing that. I would love for you to just, before we talk, obviously, a little bit more about COVID, because everybody wants to hear what you have to say on the topic. Yeah. But I would love for you to share your background. I mean, it's fascinating to how you got to where you are today. And, and not well, only your story. Well, I've been very fortunate in many ways. I Obviously, I was, everybody knows, I can tell by my, uh, my accent. Although, you know, I was born in Ireland, of course. I grew up in Ireland. And, you know, when I go back to Ireland these days, everybody wants to know why I have such a New York accent. <laughs> um, but, you know, I left home when I was young. I was about 16 when I had to leave home and go to England working in steel factories. And the reason was, as the economic circumstance of my home life was not good. I mean, materially, we didn't have much at all. It was, it was a lot of poverty. And I was the oldest. And therefore, there was extra responsibility that you had to assume when you're the oldest. Uh, my father was not in good health. So I went to England. I dreamed of going to college. Um, that was a dream of mine from a very, very young age. I loved education. I loved learning. I loved reading. So college was a dream, although I knew very little about college. So I came back from England. Um, I had done well enough in high school that I got into college in Ireland, but I had no way to pay for it. So I came over to the United States and um, I worked on the docks in the west side of Manhattan. And for three years, I would spend half the year here working, which paid for them, which had gave me enough money to help out my parents, but also to pay for college in Ireland. So I graduated undergraduate in Ireland and was very involved in uh, university politics, was very involved in athletics back in those days. But after I graduated, I came back to the U.S. And quite honestly, at that time, I wasn't sure whether I was going to stay in the United States or not. Uh, there wasn't any this master plan that I was going to stay here. But, you know, circumstances changed. Things happened. I ended up eventually going to Fordham University, getting my master's of Fordham. I uh, went on to Columbia for my doctorate, which I completed 99% of it, never actually got it for a reason I'll come to in a minute. After I graduated Fordham, I ended up by getting a job as an adjunct faculty at Fordham. Over time, became full-time faculty member, which then became assistant dean and head of their campus in Westchester. 
And I was doing that for quite a number of years when Mario Cuomo got elected governor of the state of New York. And when he was putting his team together, I got a call from his administration to know whether or not I was interested in a job in state government. I had never met the governor, had not been involved in politics at that level. So I decided, you know, I'm a big believer that when somebody opens a door for you, you should definitely walk through it to see what's on the other side. You take some risk. So I went for the interviews. I eventually said, yeah, I'll take the job. It was in Albany. I didn't have a car. I had nowhere to get to Albany. But <laughs> I said, who do we, you know, you'll figure that out. Decide to go, decide to take the job in Albany and the rest of it will, will, will handle itself over time. I ended up going to Albany, uh, became deputy. The first job was deputy commissioner in the Department of Social Services, which was the largest department in the state. And then a couple of years later, uh, the governor, whom I had uh, subsequently met, a number of times asked me to come up to the second floor of the governor's office and become his deputy secretary and then uh, head of health and human services for the state of New York. And I did that for quite a number of years. And then I became also the commissioner of social services of the state of New York. So I ended up working in government for 12 years. A big part of my role there was working on healthcare issues. I worked on substance abuse, education, health, all of the human services. When I left government after 12 years, I ended up at Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield as a senior exec. Uh, when I was at Empire, I got a call from North Shore University Hospital asking if I would come and entertain a position out at North Shore as chief operating officer. Uh, they were in the initial stages of building a health system, beginning to think about building a healthcare system, which is something I had been advocating for when I was in government. I joined North Shore. I became chief operating officer. We continued to dramatically expand. Five years later, I became five years later, I became the CEO. And that's been now, you know, what is it, 22 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. So I've been the CEO for 22 years. So, you know, I, I've met great people along the way. People have opened the door for me. Uh, you work hard. You'll be serious about what you do. You have some integrity. You, you keep your relationships intact. Do the best you possibly can. And I, you know, as I can say, I was fortunate and I got lucky. Michael, so I'm very back, privileged indeed. Take me back to when you were working in the docks. Yeah. You came to the United States. You're working on the docks. Put yourself in that mindset. Did you foresee yourself elevating to where you are today? Well, I knew I would be, I knew I would not be working at, uh, down with the boats at, Forever, I knew that was not my goal. Uh, when I worked in construction, I knew that was a temporary stepping stone to something. I wasn't sure whether or not that's what that something was. But I knew that I was on the lower rung of a ladder, and I knew I was going to jump up extra rungs on the ladder. I knew that's where I was going. Because you've got to aim high, you've got to dream big, and you've got to take risks to try to get there. So I didn't have any clue I would end up in government. I had no clue I would be running a big healthcare organization. But quite honestly, and it's not being egotistical, I knew that at some point I would have some success. And I was driven to be, to be the best I possibly could of what I did. It's like when you play sports, which I did very competitively as a young person. And to me, it wasn't good enough just to win a game. To me, you had to win the championship. It wasn't good enough to win yesterday's game. It, you have to win tomorrow's game. And so, you know, you've got to be, you have to be competitive, uh, but, you know, have good relationship skills, respect the people you meet, learn from the people you meet. Everything is a learning experience. 
Working down on the boats was a learning experience. Working in the factory in England was a learning experience. Every time you relate to somebody and every time you have any kind of an experience, you learn from it. So the key is, is to take it as a learning experience, build upon it, uh, ask yourself, what did it teach you? And then ask yourself, how do I get better? And you keep moving. And you don't, you don't get egotistical, stay humble, but that doesn't mean you have to be non-competitive. You should be competitive and you push yourself to the limit. And being around good people helps you do that as well. So yeah, back when I was working in those days, I did not think I would be doing this. Um, but um, when people ask me, what are you going to be doing next? I say, well, hopefully I'll be here for quite a while. But what we actually will be doing at Northwell in the next five years, I think will be quite different than what we're doing today. I think we're going to continue to improve and grow and get better. And that's the, you know, that's the process of life is the continuing effort to get better and better at what you do each day. Well, great life lessons and great advice. So let's talk about advice with COVID. We're right. starting to see an uptick, obviously. People are calling it a second peak. What do you want What do you want to share with the general public? We were at the epicenter back in late March, early April, and uh, we were very difficult circumstances. I mean, we, had, we back then had 3,500 patients in our hospitals each day. Uh, we've actually seen over 100,000 COVID patients as from the beginning till now. It's at least that number. And those were a tough couple of weeks. And then, uh, you know, I remember back then the rest of the country was looking at New York and basically saying, what the heck is the matter with New York? Why would I have that such of a crisis in New York? What's the matter with them up there? There must be something about the water in New York, something about the personality of New York. I mean, we are fine down here in Texas. And, of course, some of us kept warning, you know, no, no, this is not a virus travels. You, you can't control it that easily. So in New York, it got better and better. And then for long, for the last two months or so, we had about 80 or 90 patients in our hospitals, a very small number. And um, our success is due, in fact, to the compliance by the public here in New York. I mean, they're more compliant than other places. Now, not fully compliant, and I can get to that. And then you had great leadership by Governor Andrew Cuomo, who uh, I work with. Unfortunately, I've you know been very close to the Cuomo family, and I work with him very closely on this. He quarterbacked the whole effort, and uh, we were able to get it under control. Now, in the last couple of weeks, uh, the numbers have gone up again. Not huge numbers, but uh, we were going, as I say, about 80, 90 patients a day. Today, we have about 250 patients. Now, that seems like a 100% increase in the last week and a half or so from what we had before. But now put it in the context of the 3,500 patients we had back in April, it seems relatively minor. So, of mm -hmm. course, the question now becomes, what's going to happen over the next month? Well, that depends an awful lot on what the public does. And this is where there can be little tolerance for people who refuse to wear a mask for people to have social gatherings without protecting themselves or each other. Depends on what people do for Thanksgiving now. Uh, what do college kids do when they come back from college? Because if everybody did a simple thing like wearing a mask and social distancing where it's appropriate, you, that is the best treatment today that we have. I do, however, expect that not everybody is complying, of course, and we, we are clamping down on areas that do not comply and putting restrictions on, but we probably will see more cases. We are expecting 
and have plans for at Northwell um, to be able to respond to a large number of cases coming. I personally don't think it's going to be anything like what we had before. It'll be much larger than what we have now. Uh, and if we can stay diligent, not get complacent, uh, tap down on those areas that are not compliant, continue to communicate safety and mask wearing, I think we will be okay. That does not mean we don't have certain waves that will come. It'll come in waves. It'll go up, it'll come down, it'll go up and come down. And we're going to be in this situation, uh, our, our situation somewhat similar to this, I think, until about this time next year. It won't, uh, I think this time next year, we might be able to say uh, we have won over this. I would hope that we could say it this time next year. But people should not get complacent and think, oh, my God, it's all over. The other thing, the point I want to make is uh, the vaccine will be available at the beginning of the year. And that's a whole other task in itself to vaccinate everybody. But people should not say, well, there's a vaccine now. Therefore, I can lay off all of the other protections. That would be very, very, very dangerous. Because it will take, in New York, if you were to vaccinate everybody, it'll take most of next year. That's if we get all the vaccines we need. People should not sit back and say, well, it's the governor's responsibility. It's the hospital's responsibility. It's the Fed's responsibility. Quite frankly, it's your own responsibility. It's what you do. You have an obligation to do what you should be doing correctly. And if you do it, you will help all of us win this battle so we can get the economy back. So what do you say to people that are wavering of whether or not they should spend time with family for the upcoming holidays? What, what would you say to those people? I'd say have, have uh, do Thanksgiving over Zoom. Okay, you know, Connect over Zoom. Do not have large family gatherings. Uh, it's a little disconcerting, but you can put up with it for uh, one year. It's not that difficult. Do not have large families getting together. Keep the group very, very small and get together in Zoom. Do you think you know, and needs- sit back? You don't have to do these big dinners, relax, watch television, put your feet up, get popcorn if you need, and just sit back and relax. But uh, do not have large gatherings at Thanksgiving. You can handle, you can go, you can go through a year without having the formal dinners for Thanksgiving. There are other ways that you can celebrate. What are your feelings on the need or the helpfulness of closing down other businesses, particularly restaurants and gyms? Well, I don't think anybody likes to close anything down. But if you identify that the biggest danger spots are restaurants and gyms, and we know that from the tracing, etc., and that those are the places that have the highest potential incident of, trend, of infection expansion, then, then that you need to restrict. It's not, a, you know, do, I, do people like doing it? No. Yeah, if you want to control the virus, then you have to do these tough things. It would rather, you'd rather do them and have them, you know, close down for a period of time so that when they reopen, you don't have to shut down again later. But I don't, it's not good for the economy. It's not the desired outcome, but it is the more appropriate outcome in a time when you're trying to deal with a virus like this. And I know that there are people, by the way, who will say, and have said it to me, well, you know, COVID is not that bad. You know, uh, you know, I know somebody who had it. They got the sniffles and a little bit of a cough and they lost their sense of taste. Yeah, that that's the case with a lot of people. But I wish those people who are questioning its severity were in the hospital floors and in the ICUs when somebody is very sick. It would change their minds very quickly when they saw what this can actually do to you if you end up in a hospital 
and you end up in the ICU and uh, you're unfortunate enough to be on a vent, uh, then you realize how serious this is. You don't want that to be happening. You know, you never know who's going to end up in the hospital. People that can be, can be doing very well, may feel pretty good today. And we have these cases a lot. And then tomorrow they're in the hospital. And when they come to the hospital at the beginning, they don't feel that bad. Then within a couple of hours later, in many cases, they're in very, very bad circumstance indeed. I've walked around the hospitals and I've walked in every ICU and every one of our facilities at the height of the COVID crisis. It's a memory you don't want to have again and have to repeat. Uh, this is a dangerous thing if it hits you hard. And just because not everybody gets hit hard doesn't mean that we have a dis- and we don't have a need to protect against it completely. You got, we got to get this over with and do the right thing, get it over with so we can up the, open up the economy. And then hopefully next Thanksgiving and next Christmas or the following year, we can look back on it and it's a historic memory and we can recount how well we did collectively in dealing with it. You know, I'd love to talk to you about testing because I live here in New York City and over the weekend there were lines wrapped around the block. Yeah at the urgent care centers. My family said that there are lines of cars waiting on Long Island at some of the hospitals to take advantage of the testing that's available. Yeah. And I believe back in March, Northwell was testing about, doing about 1,600 tests a day. What, what have you guys gotten up to now? Well, we are doing tens of thousands of tests. Uh, we, our urgent care centers are completely swamped right now. They are unbelievably busy. I've been, we are getting on a daily basis two to three, four times the volume that we used to get normally. Some of the urgent care centers run by other players have been have had to you know slow down their hours, etc., because the, of getting uh, staff getting tired and not having enough staff. It is the busiest part of our system right now is our urgent care because everybody wants to get tested. The more testing we do, the better. The more tracing we do, the better. And uh, we have a huge lab, you know, that is able to do an awful lot of testing, thousands and thousands of tests a day. And we're fortunate that way that we have that lab and that we have expanded their capacity over the last couple of months. Uh, But yes, I'm well aware of the Lions. We had a meeting on it this morning here as to how we're going to accommodate the volume of people. But in many ways, it shows that there's a lot of interest out there to find out to know. Uh, in many ways, despite the inconvenience, it's a good thing that people are interested in getting tested. I've been tested m- multiple, multiple times. How has testing and really treatment improved since, uh, you know, the beginning of March? Oh, I think on a treatment side, uh, we are much better prepared now. Uh, we know an awful lot about the disease. Uh, we know how to intervene earlier. You remember back in March, and I remember these meetings very well, where the doctors are sitting around and our in, in, infection control people, our intensive care people are sitting around thinking, oh my God, we don't know much about this. But over the course of the experience, we know an awful lot more. We know when to give oxygen, what kind. We have a lot more of treatments now than we had before, different combinations of treatments. And so, yes, we're in a much, much better position. It's a very different circumstance than it was back in in uh, April, early April, uh, but you still don't want to take a risk of getting it just because you think the treatments are better. They are better, but you, the best thing to do is avoidance, is to avoid getting it altogether. You know, I remember back in April, people were saying, you know, don't go to the hospital until you really feel you have to. Is right. that a similar recommendation at this time? 
Yeah, I would say that. I mean, don't go to the hospital and thank you uh, unless you feel like you really have to. You go to the other places first. You go there when you're, you go to the hospital, your doctor tells you go. Or when you're really feeling depleted and uh, uh, you're not feeling well, I wouldn't necessarily, uh, uh, if you're feeling very, if you're feeling bad, I wouldn't necessarily stay home hoping it's just going to go away. You go and get some help. Come to the hospital. They may look at you. They may examine you. They may send you home. But they may also very well just keep you in. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't sit around if you're not doing well. I wouldn't just sit around hoping that you know a miracle is going to happen. It'll disappear tomorrow morning. Now I would get out and get help as much as possible, even if you have to wait a little. Because everything is, you know, every process is interrupted here. I mean, going into hospital today. And, you know, we check your temperature. We investigate everybody. If you need a procedure today, we test a couple of days before. Like I had a procedure this last week. And three days before I got tested, you know, it's the process you get tested. So it slows up the process a little bit. There's a little bit more inconvenience. And it's not because we're all inefficient. It's because we have to go through a different kind of process to make sure we're doing things safely. Uh, but yes, I would I would get to the hospital. Are a large majority of your elective surgeries back on track? Yeah, uh, all of our business, uh, all of our business, with one exception, are all back to where they were pretty much before COVID. And which, by the way, is another issue. The, Everybody was wondering for a long time, you know, the public is not going to come back. The public is not going to come back. You know, I never really believed that. We started bringing business back at the end of April uh, when it started to slow down. Um, The one place that is slower, a little bit slower, is the emergency departments. But then again, our urgent care centers are way busier. So during COVID, people got used to not coming, in my view, not coming to the emergency departments, instead going to the urgent care center. So they got used to it. It's more convenient. They're in and out quicker, even though there are some lines today. And they don't have to go to the emergency department. And that's not a bad thing. So we're, I think, at about 85% capacity in the emergency departments compared to where we were pre-COVID. In every other area, we're up to 100% and above. What about protective equipment? Has the inventory of that caught up? Yeah, now we at Northwell never had any problem with protective equipment, even during the height of the crisis in early March and early April, in late March and early April, I meant. Um, We had enough PPE, we had enough masks, we had enough gloves, because we have a whole uh, supply chain infrastructure inside Northwell. Uh, Today, in our case at Northwell, uh, we have uh, large volumes of supplies. So whatever hits us, we have plenty of supply. Other systems are much better off. Other hospitals are much better off today than they were back in um, back in April. Uh, back then, and I was helping to coordinate all of the other hospitals in the region back then, and still involved with that, of course, because we're all working together. But there were many hospitals and facilities back in in April that were in dire circumstance with PPE. They had not planned for the volume of PPE. Now, mm-hmm. also remember, this has been talked about multiple times, we were getting most of our PP, especially masks, from China. And that whole supply chain got interrupted. So now there are different supply chain uh, opportun- op- options available t- to you. You, ne- you should never again be dependent upon a few places for basic supplies when you have to fight a virus, fight a virus like this. And that's that we have to do a lot more domestic production, etc. So we're in a much different circumstance than we were uh, back in April. And the treatments are better. We know more about the disease with better better supplies. Uh, we know how to build capacity. Uh, we'd innovated a lot during the crisis, which now, of course, we can 
we're learning from, we've learned from that. So we're, we're better prepared today. Are you part of the process? Because obviously the vaccine looks like it's coming. There was positive news from a couple of large pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Are you part of the plan for how uh, those will in fact be rolled out to the public? Yes, I'm very involved uh, in it, very, very involved, working very closely with the state, very intimately with the state on this. The state, very substantial plan being put together, which will be finalized in the next week or two. This this is going to be a very complicated issue. This is not easy. Uh, Let me give you a couple of examples. Now, we will, again, going back to what we talked about leadership in the building, at the end of the day, we will vaccinate successfully. But it's it's going to be a, a difficult process. The Pfizer vaccine, which is the one that was talked about a week ago, uh, requires two shots, a main shot and a booster, about about 21 days apart. Mm-hmm. Now, the management of that, the data and the data you need to be able to track who got it, who needs it again within the sub for millions of people, that's complicated. Another complication issue is who gets it first? Obviously, high-risk individuals and healthcare workers will be the first to get it. The person on the street, the people who might be listening to this, the typical quasi-so-called healthy person on the street who is not in a high risk and who is not an essential worker, will probably not be getting the vaccine until the middle of the summer, at least. So patience is important. Mm. The other thing about the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, is that it has to be stored in temperatures of minus 80 degrees. So you have to have the freezer capacity. Now at Northwell, uh, we have a, we have adequate freezer capacity to store millions of doses of the vaccine. Good news. And we're making sure that that is the case across the state. Then you have to train the staff to give the vaccine. You have to uh, transport the vaccine. You have to make the vaccine secure. I mean, the logistics here are extraordinary. It's costly. But I believe as we go in, my own belief is that we'll have a vaccine in January of some kind. I don't know how much. Uh, But with the new administration in Washington, I think there'll be much more of a collaborative approach. We'll be able to have a logical discussion with people in Washington. Um, Because if you can, it's hard to deal with people up to this point that don't even acknowledge that we have a problem. Uh, You know, that uh, divorce from reality, that. It's very hard to work with people like that. And the administration, which, you know, it's not will not be easy, but they understand the issue. Uh, we can talk to them. And we can unify around uh, strategy. So from that point of view, it'll be easier. The last thing, I, the other thing I would say on this point is just be, when we start giving out the vaccine does not provide an excuse not to wear a mask. Very important. It's a long, we'll be a long ways away from having immunity and, my, and in many cases, when you give the vaccine, in some cases, it won't work as perfectly as everybody says. You know, the flu vaccine doesn't work perfectly on everybody. So it's, it's, it's an answer, but it's not a complete cure. We don't know that yet. Only time tells. You know, in closing, uh, you know, I, I, I assume you've had to adapt tremendously. You've learned a, a lot of lessons being on the front lines and and operating one of the most important healthcare uh, groups in the area. What positive changes did you implement because of COVID that you see will be there for the long term? And what would you say is the greatest lesson you personally have taken out of this whole crisis? Well, as a couple, let me start with the last piece. Uh, one is that it's amazing how, how innovative you can become in the middle of a crisis. Things that under normal circumstance will take you weeks and months to figure out how to do, 
because you fall into the trap of overanalyzing it and debating it and discussing it yep. because time is on your side. In a crisis, time is not on your side. So you act quickly and you end up with better results. So one of the lessons is how do you mine that um, innovative DNA that we can carry on on the regular times when we go back to so-called new normal? A couple of other things. We obviously expanded the use of technology big, big time. We're using telemedicine more. Many of our workforce, a large percentage of our workforce now working remotely. We have a lot more meetings like this on Zoom. We don't all get together in person. We can figure out, although I believe that getting together in person is unbelievably important. We got to get back to a lot of that. But we also learned that we can manage the crisis, which we did. All during COVID, we were working virtually inside Northwell because many of our leadership got sick at the beginning and we had to go virtual. We managed the whole crisis by not being together. If you had told us that we could have done that prior, we would have said, that's crazy. We got to get together. Well, we figured it out. The other great lesson here is you always appreciate the staff on the front lines that work for you. And I'm somebody that has spent an extraordinary amount of time working with the people on the front lines. In the midst of a crisis, you really find out what kind of people they are. The courage, the dedication, the compassion, the willingness to work together, the unity of purpose. Absolutely extraordinary. So when people call, talk about the heroes, the heroes and, and, and the public understood this because they celebrated it every night in front of every facility. The heroes were the nurses and the docs and the respiratory therapists and the social workers who came in each and every day. And you learn a lot about yourself in a crisis like this. It changes your perspective. It gets you to think a little bit more carefully about the meaning of life and uh, your role in it, your responsibility in it, what your family means, what your community means, uh, the importance of uh, the interdependence of us all. We're all interdependent with one another. Uh, We're not isolated human beings that can go off our own way. It's something we should, by the way, it's something I've been talking about recently is that there is a great opportunity now for the United States to take a leadership role internationally to work with other countries to figure out how to uh, anticipate these crises in a better way going forward and how to come together on a unified uh, response to crises like this. Because these are global issues. You cannot solve them nationally by avoiding international collaboration. It's all about global. Crises like this will happen again. It's just a matter of time. And so another lesson I'll end with this piece is you have to have a culture of preparedness. You've got to constantly ask yourself the question, am I prepared for the inevitability of a major crisis down the road? What do I need to do in my organization? And it doesn't apply just to healthcare. Any organization What do I need to do now to be better prepared for what if, the question, what if this happens? Am I prepared? Are my people prepared? Do I have the resources? Do I have the personnel? Do I have the structure? Do I have the process? And it should be on everybody's shelf. This is my disaster preparedness plan for when a disaster strikes. And by the way, when you have that plan, which we did, you can stay calm. Push calmness to the side is if you're trying to come up with a detailed plan in the middle of a crisis. It's like to fix the roof of your house when it is pouring rain, right? Good luck. You fix the roof when the sun is shining and you can relax, you can smile. And then when it rains afterwards and the roof is fixed and you have already prepared, you can sit back and say, boy, was I smart. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing really your wonderful story, uh, your advice, your insight. 
but most importantly, your actions that you and the whole Northwell team took to keep all of us safe. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Thank you for all you guys do, and uh, looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Anytime. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Make sure to check out a new episode of Schneps Connects every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts, or stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com. Thank you so much.